and welcome to Peace Lab, the podcast focused on current events, faith, and peacemaking from a Mennonite perspective. I am your one of the two great hosts here. I'm Jason Boone of the Peace and Justice Support Network, and my other co-host, the greater of the co-hosts, uh, Melissa Floor Bixler. Melissa, how's your week going? It's going okay so far. How about you? Not bad. You know, we're talking here on the eve of tax day. And so, you know, not bad is, is sort of relative. I, I think maybe I'll, you know, tomorrow won't be as good even because it'll be closer and I'll be more anxious because my, I'm, I'm part procrastinator. That's, I had my DNA tested and it's like 70% procrastinator. And so I got a lot of work to do. And so it makes me nervous. It makes me a little bit anxious, but I, I don't think you and I have even talked about this offline, but just this whole issue of paying taxes as a, as a good pacifist and a Mennonite, how have you processed this issue just in your own sort of personal faith? Yeah, where, where are you at with it? It's a tough one. It seems like we're in a system now that it's hard to get out of paying taxes because eventually the government will find a way to get you to pay even if you don't. I think there's a sense in which it's just hard to know how to resist the massive amount of money that goes into the military budget every year, you know, trillions of dollars. You can't even get a, a good number on it. Like that's frustrating too, you know, cause we're, we're doing this, this campaign this week with mission network and giving people an option to say, you know, if you have to pay your taxes, however you handle that, you know, put it into something positive. Uh, you know, so we're collecting money and it's going to be distributed to, uh, National Peace Tax Fund to Christian peacemaker teams and reconciliation. But even as we were we were planning that campaign, it was like, so actually how much goes to the military? And it kind of depends on what website you go to. You know, some people say it's like 12% or it goes up to 50. But if you just read your history anyway, you know that this is a budget. It's a moral document. But like the U.S. defense budget is like theater. It's not real. You know, it was like money from the Marshall Plan went for CIA operations, you know. So, so well, if it actually goes where it goes, like that, that's one question, but you're right. It's almost like that. It, we're so enmeshed in this. There's no way to, to be clean from it all, you know, unless you're just totally off the grid and, and then maybe even not. So I, I don't know, like, do we kind of go to, okay, what's, what's a good romantic gesture or symbolism, or, or is there a practice that I can engage in that, that at least gives some order to, to my, my beliefs, even as I'm enmeshed in the system? I was thinking about changing the moral landscape on some of these questions around funding, because I think that what I hear over and over again is we need to fund a strong military. We need to be able to, if we were not to pay our taxes, most likely what would happen is it's not going to come out of the military budget, the shortfall. It would come out of social services. And and so I think a lot about what do we need to do to change the environment around our national conversation around the importance of peace and justice as people of faith and to just call into question the sense of safety that we get from these just constantly escalating military budgets. You mentioned reconciliation, really grateful for that organization and just how they've highlighted the peace work that goes on around uh, North Korea and demilitarization there and um, so I think we have some of those organizations you already mentioned that are helping us to think through how do we change uh, people's imaginations about what keeps us safe. Uh, that's a good question, too, because now it's, it's so removed. And so if you, if you rewind the clock, and we're going to be talking to John Stoner here in a little bit about 
about taxes and tax resistance and, and about endless war. And if you go back and you say, okay, September 12th, 2001 or whatever, it's not my belief, but you can see how people can say, no, we want to be safe. We're going to do X. And then X sort of drifts into Y and Y drifts into Z. And now we don't know what's going to happen with Syria and things get all muddy. It's almost like uh, safety is just gets your foot in the door. It just cracks the door open. And then all these other things come in and it's almost impossible to untangle. You know, we've had this similar conversation around ownership of guns, right? We know that people, very small minority of people own most of the guns in the United States. Oh, I think a lot of times what we're hearing is the reason for that is that people want to feel safe and they want to be able to protect themselves. And one of the things I want to focus on is how do we create a community and a culture just around us of people who can begin to trust one another to be for each other and to overcome some of the things that keep us separated. And I know that's not going to answer questions about what we do with our taxes. When I think about what Jesus is asking us to do in the Gospels, it often feels like uh, it is about changing what's going on beneath the surface. Um, How do we address uh, really what are people's needs and fears and hopes for a flourishing world? And that somehow this belief that um, we can love one another is a part of that in some really essential and fascinating way. I, I love that. I, that. That takes me back. We, we did that podcast with, uh, with Megan Good, you know, out there in Trinity. And she said, you know, we were talking about how do you talk about your Anabaptist beliefs? And she was like, you know, you're inviting people into a different reality. And, and so, you know, like, don't lose the lead on that. Now, you're saying this is a whole new way to, to engage with the world. You know, for, for me, I, I have a lot of respect for folks who have who've taken on the, the tax issue in those long-term ways and also just how they, you know, some people resisted taxes and some people resisted partial taxes or they live below the, the line of, you know, where you can get taxed and all that. And that's one of those things when I was doing my reading about what, if I was going to become a Mennonite or not, you know, and I would read about organizations like CPT and I would read about how these different, uh, these different manifestations of our beliefs have come, you know, have come about and, and tax resistance or or some sort of thoughtful engagement with this, at the very least, is, is a big part of who we are. I, I kind of think, you know, even as we are enmeshed in this, in this big system, it reminds me a little bit of, uh, of Sartre, and my southern tongue just butchered his uh, beautiful name, Jean-Paul Sartre. Yeah, he talked about, he felt the most freedom he ever felt when he was in France under Nazi-occupied, you know, when the Nazis were occupied. And he wasn't a Nazi. But, you know, his conception of freedom was all the stakes were that much higher, you know, and so every choice you had to make really, really important, almost because your other choices were so limited. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it feels like that. You say, well, it's, it, it, it seems impossible to move this mountain. And so that's why it's even more important that, that the next step we take is, is one that we, you know, really believes reflects our values. Yeah, and I think part of that, too, is... I say this with some hesitancy because I think it's an easy way to get out of having to do something difficult. But I think it's also true that it's important that we have people who do make this symbolic step of resisting the war tax and people who who feel called to that in in some way. In the same way that it's important that we have people who do the work with CPT um, and go into places of conflict as a witness to peace. It's important that we have people whose job is to sit in a monastery and pray all day uh, and to pray for the church and for other people. And, uh, and so I'm grateful for people who serve for me 
as a prophetic reminder to ask these questions more deeply of myself and what can I do and, and what am I called to? And those people are prophets in a lot of ways for the church. And, and so, yeah, I continue to be grateful. Even I think symbolic gestures can, right, can make it sound like it's not important, but I actually think it's really vital for the church to continue to have people who remind us, like you said, that budgets are moral documents and, and we need to, to think deeply about how we spend our money. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that too about the monastery and stuff. Not that I'm in one or, or would, would do well in that setting, but just the other idea is, well, almost the other side of the coin is, okay, well, there's only one way to, to address this. And that's never been, been exciting to me. It's exciting to see, you're right, that some people are called to this and they live it out no matter what the consequences are. And I'm like, oh, you know, hats off to you on that. I can't do it for various reasons, but maybe I can do something else. That's one of those, you know, we get into these larger questions sometimes of, of what's a peacemaking church in the 21st century or whatnot. You know, it, it still has to be contextualized to, to people and their situations. And, and, and so I, I, w- I would never prescribe, you know, there's one way for a Mennonite or a you know, pacifist or however broad you want to get to, to deal with this issue. Because we know, you know, you, you've, if you've met one Mennonite, you've met one Mennonite. You know, so it'd be foolish to try to prescribe that. But even... Even then, it, like that puts for me, it puts too much limits on on what God and the Holy Spirit may do in someone's life. You know, I think a example of how our church has been called to think about more deeply about our spending and and the role that our budgets play in our moral life is as we've sort of thought through this campaign that you're talking about and and what we do with our money is as we are partnering with another church in the sanctuary movement, do we want to designate our funds in our budget as money going towards sanctuary, knowing that that could put our 501c3 status in jeopardy. And so we, you know, in our last church life meeting, we talked about that as that would be a decision that we make that is risky in a sense, it would be an act of civil disobedience with our budget. And so I think I'm reminded that we are part of a church that has a culture of thinking about money as a way to be resistant and as a way for us to, as a tool that's within the limits of our peace and justice action. I think that we are all discovering through this history of the symbolic action of not paying the war tax we all could find that there are ways that we could do similar kind of work, uh, even if it isn't in that specific symbolic act. Oh, that, that's interesting. You're right. So, and there are other ways sort of to, to have skin in the game. There, there's a new book out that title, but so yeah, the, your congregation has skin in the game if they're making some of these decisions and of course individuals and, and families and it sort of ripples out. But, but then, well, I guess that's, again, that's the other side of being enmeshed in the system too, is that you, know, you can still make choices and they are going to have consequences and, and if they were purely symbolic, then maybe they wouldn't have any consequences at all. So, so these are important conversations to have. Well, you know, we've, we've, we're talking about this, and we wanted to get on someone today who's been thinking about especially the, the tax issue and, and other forms of tax resistance for longer, probably maybe than me and you've been alive, Melissa. I don't know. I don't want to, I'm not going to date John K. Stoner. I'll let him do that himself. Yeah, we are glad to have John Stoner joining us here on Peace Lab. And with that, I am happy to, to see and hear my good friend again, John Stoner. John, thanks for taking time to join us in the Peace Lab today. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. And for anyone who doesn't know you, if, if they're outside of uh, the Mennonite circles or I don't know what their history's been, why, why are we talking to you today, John? What has what uh, John K. Stoner been all about and uh, kind of what, what have you done 
refresh some of our, our friends who might know you from the past or folks who don't know you at all. Well, okay. I started out in the Brethren in Christ Church, and uh, I went to seminary. I felt a call to pastoral ministry, and uh, so I went to the Mennonite Seminary in Goshen Elkhart in the 60s and uh, took a pastorate in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania for was there for eight years in a racially changing community. It was uh, a good and a challenging uh, experience. We started to move the church toward uh, multi-racial participation and membership. Then I moved to Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, to work with the Mennonite Central Committee and its peace section, and I did that for 12 years. We worked to support young, you know, as always with young men, as uh, registering their convictions as conscientious objectors to war. We also had a women's concerns uh, desk and um, uh, the Washington office, which uh, sought to give information and possibilities for public uh, witness uh, to, to Mennonites and others. So I was at the Mennonite Central Committee for those years. And then I started a project called uh, Every Church a Peace Church, which was an effort to say that Mennonites uh, and brethren and friends of peace churches shouldn't claim some exclusive right to this way of peace, but that's uh, Jesus' basic message. So let's let's talk to each other as Christians across the board about it. So now I'm actually retired, living in Akron, Pennsylvania, and uh, I try to spend as much time as I can with uh, uh, my grandchildren and my garden and uh, my uh, books and friends. Well, yeah, and you, you do a lot more than that, too. You're, you're very active in your church and peace groups. I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about that, but I, I guess you know, the first thing I would lay out there for you, we're, we're talking about several of what you just talked about. You know, how, how do we maintain our, our beliefs in the midst of the system and whatnot, but especially about taxes? So let me just ask you, John, how come I shouldn't just render unto Caesar what is Caesar's? Tax day is coming up. This is a pretty easy process, right? Fill it out, send it in, maybe you get a check back. Right, yeah. Well, if you're taken words from Jesus there, uh, he actually didn't tell us what exactly to render to Caesar. He just said, what is Caesar's? And he left it to us to discern that. There's a big mistake made by the church historically in interpreting this uh, text. The church has acted as if uh, render to Caesar what Caesar's and to God what is God's set up some kind of a 50-50 parity here that you know, you have God's left hand to Caesar, and God's right hand is what? Jesus. And so you give them each sort of a, an equal cut. Well, I mean, Caesar was not uh, some kind of half moral equivalent to God back then. When Jesus said that, they heard something like, well, render unto Hitler what is Hitler's, and to God what is God's. So that sets you thinking, well, then, what is God's and what is Caesar's? <laughs> You know, Jesus gave us a good lead on that whenever he announced the coming of the kingdom or kingship of God. Well, that stood right over against the kingship of Caesar. That was a challenge. And of God sets us on a task of defining what a kingship of God would look like. And Jesus was about uh, showing us that with his words and his life. So, you know, how much do you render to Caesar? Well, not more than Caesar deserves. And we started a project here we call 1040 for Peace. It is symbolic resistance to war taxes or conscientious objection to taxes that support wars. 
John, can you tell us a little bit more about 1040 for Peace and how does it work? How do you decide how much you're not going to give and uh, what happens in the process and what's happened for you and others? In the past, uh, actually, my wife and I, like a lot of quite a few other people, withheld what uh, we could see as uh, the national budget share that was spent for the military. And that annually comes something close to 50% of the federal budget goes to the military. So some of us were withholding uh, up to 50% of the taxes uh, we were said to owe at the end of the year, tax year. But uh, we found the government collecting that after two or three years and uh, forcibly collecting it by by attaching uh, a bank account or maybe uh, wages. And they would take that withheld money with uh, penalties and interest. So in the end, they got more money than they would have. Well, we kind of knew that would happen. But after you do that a while, you say, well, this is a symbolic effort. You're trying to send a message. You know you're not going to sort of stop the machine single-handedly, but you're making a witness and taking a symbolic action. So we said, well, what's a symbolic number? Well, why not $10.40? $10.40 for the tax form. So we with just underpay by $10. And uh, about an hour ago, I wrote uh, my annual check uh, and withheld $10. You know, you round the numbers off. The 40 cents goes wherever those odd cents go. But the $10 goes to an alternative peacemaking project. We send that to National Campaign for a Peace Tax Fund, which would recognize act and a a right of conscientious objection to military taxes. So what happens if we don't pay? This small amount, you get some reminders, you you get letters that say, uh, you owe so much. You know, sometimes we send a letter back, another copy of our original letter, which explained why we were withholding this amount. It's the way we're uh, sort of throwing our box of tea into the Boston Harbor. Uh, it's a symbolic act, but symbols are important. Well, that's exactly what we were just talking about, too. But before you join us, John, is just the, the power of symbol, the importance of that as, as an expression of our faith. Yeah, let me just get a little bit broader here. I, I, I love hearing about the specific ways that 1040 for Peace works. And I'm glad to be representing Midnight Church USA on the, uh, on the board of National uh, Peace Tax Fund. I think that's a worthy thing to do. But if we really start to get down to it, how do we extricate ourselves and our country from these never-ending perpetual wars that we started you know, all these years ago in the guise of safety, in the guise of fighting terrorism, and now we're on the, the precipice of doing who knows what to Syria for who knows what? No one knows the story, but, but we can drop some bombs on it no matter what the story is. How do we get out of this? I don't know that we get out of it as such. I think... We make a witness for a different way in the midst of it. That's what I think Jesus was doing, his disciples were doing. That's what this uh, good news of the coming kingship reign of God is about. It's about another way of running the world. Christians need to learn to think in the big picture. You know, every Christian knows John 3.16. You know, you get your own soul saved or believe in Jesus and you'll have life. 
The next verse, John 3, 17, is God didn't send his son into the world, cosmos, to condemn the cosmos, but that the cosmos through him might be saved. So if we are to participate with Jesus in some work, what is that work? Well, it's nothing less than saving the cosmos, the world. That's the only thing we were given, this world, to be stewards of the world. You know, today people are slowly awakening to the fact that uh, this is a fragile world, and that's what concern about ecology, the environment, and sustainability is about. That's about participating in John 3.17 work, God's business of saving the world. It doesn't happen fast. It doesn't happen in one person's lifetime. I think it's far better to to lose what looks like, uh, what take what looks like a loss actually on the winning side than to win on the side of these contests on a cause that's really losing. And that's this war machine. It's, it's, it's doomed. And the empire knows it's doomed. That's why they're kicking and screaming now, like they are right now. John, I was wondering if you, you know, you've, uh, You've seen a lot in your time, and so you've done a lot of activism, done a lot of work in the church, and um, we're living in strange and difficult times. And what word of encouragement would you give to younger members of the Mennonite Church uh, from from what you've seen and, and what you've experienced? Yeah, well, I think every person's individual life gains meaning from what they do with their own life. So for me, it is meaningful to involve myself in projects that don't promise to single-handedly save the world, but I find it very meaningful to continue to act on the teachings of Jesus to find our ways to do God's will on earth as it's done in heaven. And uh, that means being compassionate. It means looking for the ways to encourage people who are struggling. You know, I live by verses like in Isaiah chapter. I looked this up just now again. Isaiah says, God said to him, this in very troubled times, Israel was hanging on by a thread or maybe not even a thread, and the people were scared to death. God said through Isaiah, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what it fears or be in dread. It's a matter of hearing better voices. There are voices in the public which speak truth rather than lies. We have to seek them and uh, pay attention, make some effort to, to hear different voices. And these are quite available on the Internet. It doesn't happen by itself. We all have to find those encouraging voices for ourselves. John, I appreciate your encouragement today. I appreciate the encouragement that that I get from you at at different times and the witness that you've lived. And and for all of us out there, again, as we sort of face down a a day that that brings up some existential angst to really think about, you know, the whole burden's not on us. Uh, You know, there's a bigger, bigger thing going on here through Jesus. But uh, if we can find the courage to take the little steps that we can and and live the way that that we think we're being called in, in those footsteps, then then all of a sudden we're, we're part of that bigger plan. And uh, that's, that's good encouragement for me today. Hey, th- thanks for joining us on Peace Lab, John. 
it's been good to be here, and uh, I will follow your future programs with interest more, I guess, since I've been on it myself, huh? And please, if you see John in public at, at the Afrata Diner, don't ask him for an autograph. You know, respect his privacy now that he's been on Peace Lab. You're going to get that a lot, John, so sorry. Hey, and thank you for joining us on Peace Lab. We had a lot of fun talking about the taxes today and ways that we can be faithful uh, even in the midst of things going on that we don't support and we don't necessarily want to be a part of. You can support Peace Lab by following us, uh, subscribing to the podcast. When this comes out, on uh, when we share it on Facebook through the Mennonite or Peace and Justice Support Network, like it, share it with your friends. Let's get more people talking about peace. Uh, for Melissa Flora Bixler, I'm Jason Boone, and we will see you next time. <laughs>